0: This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to historian Bruce Deerstein of Gilderland. He has just published a book he hopes will be judged. His book, The Crucible of Public Policy, New York Courts in the Progressive Era, examines cases heard by the state's top court, which he posits was arguably the second most important in the nation. What he strove to do in his book, he says, is to present the evidence and say to people, read the decisions for yourself. He considers this to be a citizen's obligation. Too much these days, he says. What we learn is filtered through what other people think and say. Go back to the source, Deerstein urges. Those of you that have a long memory <laughs> will know that we talked to him and wrote about him back in 2015 when he published a book, The Spirit of New York Defining Events in the Empire State's History. And he has just come out again with SUNY Press with a new book, The Crucible of Public Policy New York Courts in the Progressive Era. Welcome,
1: Bruce. Oh, thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Well, reading through um, the interview that I did back in 2015, you told me that your editor wanted you to cut out chapters and... I know that you just re-upped the book with a few new chapters, but i looked back and I saw you told me that one of the chapters you cut out of that original version of the History of New York book was on the Court of Appeals decision on Lochner and also on Parker. And I just wondered if that became the seed for this current endeavor.
1: Well, I think it's fair to say it became one of several seeds, some, some older than others. Uh, I've, I've been working about in New York State history for many years and uh, know, know quite a bit about it, but I always had a sense that it sort of trailed off when the historians started discussing state courts, state, New York State Court of Appeals, New York State Court of Appeals decisions. And that's in part, I think, because historians have been so interested in the federal courts and the Supreme Court. And that for that for obvious, uh, that for obvious reasons. So uh, there were things over the years that I sort of made myself mental note. When I get time, <laughs> I'm going to look into those further. Uh, and uh, uh, Lockdown was certainly uh, one of them. Uh, Alton B. Parker has been an interest of mine since my senior thesis at Hartwick College many, many years ago. He was the uh, chief judge from uh, 1897 to 1904 and 1904 Democratic uh, presidential uh, candidate. So, yes, in the new book, uh, I cover uh, Lochner. I also have a chapter on Parker running for president, which has really never been written up before. Parker is the only uh, presidential candidate, in a major party, who has no biography written about. Him. He's, the only, he's the only one, uh, which is uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, so that's in there. Uh, but by the time I got to writing this book, I knew quite a bit about that. I had actually written a couple of things in the intervening years. And um, uh, that didn't make it into the the first book, Spirit in your first edition. So it did make it into this book. Uh, Parker runs for president made it into this book. But the the real story in this new book is not Parker, not very well-known, but people might recognize his name, or the Lochner case, which is well-known because it went to the U.S. Supreme Court and was precedent-setting there, but rather other things, uh, other issues, other cases uh, that people did not uh, did not know about, or that, <clears throat> excuse me, in the standard text, you'll see just a slightly in passing, and maybe, maybe they're in a footnote. So uh, one of the things that struck me as I did the research for this book is how often some of the issues I was encountering in the, in the progressive era Which is the era I know? I know the best. Uh, It's about 1900 to about 1920. How many of those issues seem to keep popping up in the news? uh, As I did the uh, research, book wrote the book, and even and even today. So, things like personal privacy, uh, uh, public health. How far can the government go in regulating business? How far can the government go in either encouraging or uh, restricting uh, personal liberty uh, on behalf of the people uh, as a whole. Uh, how far should the government go in protecting workers uh, and protecting women, uh, and so on? And so it's it seems like some of these issues, while well, we think, gosh, that's brand new, it just it just happened, just in court today. Actually, they've been around for quite a while. And uh, some of the decisions we're so concerned about right now, because there have been a couple of recent ones, in particular from the U.S. Supreme Court, these issues have been around for a while. Uh, They've been in the courts before, and the courts have decided them in certain ways, and sometimes people liked it and sometimes they didn't. Um, over the years, I think the courts, and I'm generalizing, get things more right than they do wrong. But uh, starting with About to Paradise started with 1900 or thereabouts. So when you find uh, public criticism of the court, media criticism of the court, really for the first time, you didn't find that in the 19th century. It was, um, it was muted uh, and, and uh, in comparison to what we have today. But that's when kind of public and political criticism, commentary on criticism of some of these court decisions began to pop up.
0: So I'm going to back up. I want to unpack each one of these things you've mentioned, but I'm going to back up because you said that the progressive era is one of your favorites. Just tell us a little about what the era was and why it's been a favorite for you, why it's such an important part.
1: Well, Presbyterian was circa 1900 to circa around 1920. And I find it so interesting because it was sort of a time of reckoning. A lot of issues and problems that built up in the late 19th century relating to urbanization, uh, industrialization, uh, large numbers of, uh, of, of immigrants coming in. And there was a sense in the country, I think, circa uh, 1900, that we had a lot of issues that have sort of built up in this country that we hadn't hadn't addressed. And I I was interested in a a public opinion poll in the media yesterday. where They asked people if they thought the country was on the right path, the wrong path. Something like 80% said, no, we're on the wrong path. They didn't have public opinion polls then, but I think if they had, And you would ask people in 1900, they would have said, well, the country's not on the right path. (laughs) uh, We've got to do better. So the progressives emerged circa 1900, and they fell into into, uh, three categories. Uh, 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 Journalists and editorialists and people who did investigative reporting, whom uh, President Theodore Roosevelt uh, uh, kind of... uh, and disparagingly called muckrakers because they were always um, raking up things that were wrong. Uh, second class, second group. I call middle class professionals who wanted to reform things and make things better. Many of these you know, were women, as reflected in my book and in the literature generally. So, uh, Florence Kelly is one who was a. Uh, it seems to pop up in just about every reform movement in the progressive era in New York, and and indeed nationally. And then the third group were political leaders. Uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, probably the best known, but here in New York, Charles Evans Hughes, a governor from 1907 to 1910. And then a little later, two leaders in the legislature, Robert Wagner, later United States Senator, and Al Smith, Assemblyman, later, of course, uh, one of New York's, uh, great governors. So uh, they didn't have a, a a unified, seamless, unassailable agenda. But in general, uh, they knew that they wanted to restore integrity to politics and make government more uh, responsive to the public. And so they fought political bossism. They brought in the direct primary, direct election of senators. They used to be elected by the legislatures uh, and so on. They regulated corporations, uh, both at the state level and at the national level, as they had never been regulated before. They protected workers, New York's an excellent example, through uh, laws prescribing maximum hours, uh, a decent working conditions, safety measures, workman's compensation, which still d- d- dates from this period in New York, women's suffrage, uh, regulation of women's working hours, and generally promoted what uh, one historian uh, called a a commitment to community and mutuality and compromise. (laughs) But they also had kind of a hidden agenda, and that is they were trying to ward off uh, extremists, if you will, from the left, uh, represented by the socialists and the Socialist Party. whom we think of today as being uh, just another minor political party, but in those days, that was regarded as sort of a um, menace, if you will. So they have multiple uh, uh, motivations, multiple agendas, and, and so on. Because New York had so many issues that sort had of built up in the late 19th century, then as now, uh, the largest, I would say most complex, by far the most historically interesting state, I might be a little biased there. (laughs) Uh, uh, New York then began to pass progressive legislation, regulatory legislation, some cases restrictive legislation. And some of it went down well, but a lot of it, no surprise, was challenged in the courts. That's really what this crucible public policy uh, book is about because I maintain that the Court of Appeals, New York State Court of Appeals, became the crucible. That's where I, I sort of borrowed this term, the place where some of these issues were uh, finally thrashed out and and settled, even though they may have been settled in a sense through a legislation uh, or executive action. It was the courts that finally uh, settled things. So because the issues hit here in jail first, the regulation, regulatory, the progressive legislation, a lot of it uh, was enacted here first, and therefore it tends to be challenged here in courts first, or at least early on, before these same waves reached the rest of a lot of the country. The, that, that led me to the conclusion, which I, I sort of, Knew, but it was, I guess, I was reinforced by this new research that other states watched New York to see what we did, what laws we enacted, and then other state courts watched the New York State Court of Appeals to to see what it did. And some of these issues, some hit uh, about the same time in other state courts, but some of them hit here first. And therefore, I, I conclude again uh, with New York being of central importance. New York State Court of Appeals was then, I would say, is not the most important state court in the nation, uh, one that a lot of other state courts watch, and it had such um, a, a, a stature that its Chief Judge Alton Parker, who was a very shrewd political operator, uh, could actually run for president in 1904. It's hard to imagine any other state having that status, or any state court today having that status. That was really his only uh, political experience. He'd been judge all, all his life. In 1904, the Democrats nominated him for for president. So the New York State Court of Appeals uh, was was kind of the one the one to watch. Um uh, I think um, one, of, one of the issues you were interested in is parallels with today. And uh, I guess I see in many ways, nowadays, like those days, a period of stress, anxiety, uh, kind of worry, a sense of we're drifting, uh, you know, things are kind of getting out of hand, and that we let some things go too long, and what are we going to do ab- about them? And the progressives were very much feeling that same thing. There was feeling well, the government's got to act. You must, it must do something uh, to address these things, and and so it did. And that led to these issues kind of coming up in the court. But uh, some of the issues that the courts dealt with, wrestled with. Uh, sort of put to rest by over a hundred years ago about 1900 it, it seemed they were they were put to rest and would go dormant well they didn't because you know history keeps going on and some of these issues uh, keep coming up they're maybe they're endemic to uh, to American life uh, such as the regulation of business uh Uh, promotion of and restrictions on uh, personal liberty, protection of workers, protection of women, public health, I have a chapter in here on the insanity defense and murder. It's just been in the news again. And so times change, issues change. Uh, uh, The political fashions, if you will, change. Laws change. Judges change, but the the issues keep uh, keep coming up and need to be I don't know what de- resolved or wrestled to the ground by each generation, uh, and that's not going to stop today either. That's going to that's going to keep uh, uh, continuing. Some dissimilarities I see between now and the period I worked on, which again is just a little more than a century ago, is then uh, there was an inclination toward compromise, accommodation, bipartisan uh, solutions. uh, Politics stops at the water's edge. Now, I I think I see, I think we all see, overblown rhetoric, uh, confrontational politics, not as much constructive debate over public issues as there ought to be and lots of attention to and criticism of the Supreme Court in particular. As I say, that started over a century ago, but it was much more uh, muted, constrained, uh, and so on. And the only thing I might add there before we move on to something else is I always urge people when there's any controversial court decision, read the decision for yourself. (laughs) It's up there online. Uh, Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, New York State Court of Appeals. And in fact, all of the Court of Appeals cases, and I think uh, decisions, rather, uh, and all of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions, including all the ones I cover in my book, are are available online if you just Google them. Uh, they come up, and there's some other easily accessible databases you can you, know, you can search, and and I urge that because the courts at their best. Now, trying not to generalize about today because we get into some pretty controversial topics pretty fast. But the courts at their best in my period, and the Court of Appeals at its best, I'm convinced, wrote not just the, the decisions were not just. Uh, for other uh, judges. They were not just for lawyers. They were for the media and indirectly for the people because the courts are supposed to be the, in a sense, the representatives of the people. So read these decisions for yourself. Uh, There will be some legal jargon and, and technical things there. And, um, References to old cases, which you may or may not want to pursue, but you ought to be able, people like us who are not attorneys, ought to be able to to understand them. If we can't, well, that's a that's a problem, I think. So I tried to read some of these. So I'm not an attorney. I'm a historian. I've sort of taught myself to understand a lot of this stuff as I went along uh, by consulting Uh, legal encyclopedias, legal histories, legal dictionaries. But even even if you don't do that, you can can read these and hopefully understand the gist of what the courts are saying. And oftentimes, excuse me, when they reverse something from a long time ago, they explain pretty carefully their reasoning. You may not agree with it. You may agree with it, may not agree with it. Uh, but they don't gloss over uh, why they are reversing uh, what uh, what was decided by predecessor courts uh, years years ago. So uh, that's that's just some uh, some uh, possible insights into things. All, all of that just leads back quick quickly to the conclusion of New York State court appeals, very important, particularly in the Progressive Era around 1900
0: 1920 well I love your advice and uh, you've spoken to me before about the power of original sources this idea of going and so easy these days online to see the document and I think you said in your introduction to your book that a lot of these things that you researched no one else had looked at (laughs) which is kind of surprising but I wonder now here we are in this time that you see and have nicely delineated for us some parallels, you know, then in the progressive era, it was coming from industrialization. Now we're in this internet age that has upended things. And you gave us this list, which I just jotted down, and I'm hoping we can walk through some of these same issues that are coming up again. They're not dormant at all. And if you could just, with the research that you Put into this book, kind of enlighten us on our history, (laughs) so that you know going forward we'll have an understanding of where we are. I'd love it, Um, and I'm going to add one to the list because you did something on the smallpox, smallpox vaccine, which I find you know very topical now with the vaccine hesitancy. But the first one you mentioned was personal privacy, and can you just talk a little bit about? You know, that case that you wrote up with a woman who um, had her picture used for advertising.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, let me just give uh, you one, one more quotation before I, before I move on. Yeah. Yes, this is something that you see it quoted, and I've actually quoted some. Charles Evan Shoes, who was a great New York uh, governor, when he, uh, when he was, uh, later became U.S. Supreme Court uh, uh, Chief Justice. When he was governor, in a speech one day, he said, we are under Constitution, but the Constitution is what the judges say it is. Uh, he kind of walked that back later, and he meant to say, courts will protect us, don't worry, but it didn't come out that way. And uh, it was actually a 1907 speech. But this is often quoted uh, in regard to the power of the courts which it's fair it's fair up to a point so we we have to we have to keep in mind that the judges have profound power they also have I would say profound responsibility and that's that's kind of baked into our system in the United States and it's baked in here in New York uh, and and it ought to be so yeah one of the um, one of the cases, maybe the most interesting case I have in the book, and and people are are, are really interested in this one, is about uh, personal privacy. So, if you ask uh, average the average citizen here, do you have personal privacy? Does the government protect that? I think people would say, well, I think so. I'm not too sure, uh, and that's that's a that's a fair and reasonable answer because. This is a very complex issue, and it comes up again and again and again. And it came up most recently in Roe versus Wade, and then the the decision that overturned it. Is there a constitutional right, uh, an inherent right, kind of something in the in the system that we all have to to privacy? This came up in New York. Again, one of the first places in the country In a case Called Roberson versus Rochester Folding Box Company You can, you can look that up it's, it's there online In 1902 And it came up This, this is, makes the story particularly interesting A 17 year old Young lady uh, Whose photograph is being used To advertise flour made by a Rochester company, uh, uh, sued in the courts to stop this and to get $15,000 worth of damages, which today uh, might be sustainable by a company. In those days, it would have bankrupt both the company that made the flower and the company that made the boxes and the posters. So, Again, just another side, if you go to Google Images, and you Google in Abigail Roberson, that comes up. <laughs> it's right there online. You can see it uh, for yourself. So there's a photograph, and she's kind of looking off into the distance. Uh, you can't really see her full face. Uh, and it says uh, the, uh, the name of the flower, and it says Flower of the Family. There's sort of a sense of well, here's a young lady from a nice family. Maybe we don't know, and they used it to sell flour. So uh, she went to court through her aunt. As far as I can make out, she she was an orphan, or anyway, her aunt had trust, had guardianship of her, and they hired a lawyer and they went to court, and they said, look. Uh, this is wrong. I, Abigail Roberson, have a right to my own image. Nobody asked if they could use this. Nobody approached me. And this has caused acute mental distress because while, well, you know, people elsewhere had no idea who it was, her friends didn't. And so they began teasing her uh, about it. And, and it put her in a very difficult situation. So... The company maintained, they, they didn't know whose image it was, and they were kind of cagey about where they got it. And, and Abigail, who must have known, because she must recognize the image where it came from, she never said. <laughs> so it looks like a professional image and uh, lots of speculation, but my best guess was, is she it was taken in a professional photographer's studio one day. Either the professional photographer sold it, or she gave a copy to somebody and they and they gave it away. Now, by way of context here, uh, this was the this was a new era. Photography was new. The Eastman Kodak camera, uh, which um, was pioneering, only went back to eighteen eighty-eight. And so a lot of people had them by the turn of the century. People could snap other people's photos surreptitiously. Uh, there were lots of commercial studios. And so I could take your picture without your permission and sell it without your permission. And a studio, if you went in and you paid, uh, they could keep the image, the the, the the negative, And they could sell it without your, without your permission. So they couldn't go into your house and steal a copy and, uh, like that. That's theft. But they could sell it. There was no law against that. And lots of studios... Uh, did this and lots of people Particularly women were exploited And maybe the most extreme example Was the president's wife Frances Folsom Cleveland And advertisers Got her hold of her image And used it in ads for uh, Food products Medicines and and the like And The courts uh, The, the courts sort of Fumbled with this This came up in Uh, State court before, and the court said, Well, if it had been stolen, that's theft, but we don't see any inherent right for you to maintain uh, your your own uh, image. Uh, uh, Scholars, some scholars, uh, particularly a fellow named Louis Brandeis, who was an attorney then and was in uh, Massachusetts, later U.S. Supreme Court justice, they maintained there was a right uh, to privacy. Uh, it's inherent in the Constitution. But the courts were kind of of wishy-washy on this. So the state legislature took it up in the late 1890s, a number of times, and they couldn't deal with it because they could not define, or said they couldn't, exactly what privacy was. And the, the newspapers of the day urged them to go slow, be cautious, because They didn't want restrictions which would keep them from using photographs in newspapers to accompany news stories or sometimes kind of sensationalize what was called yellow journalism, exposés on people. And so the uh, legislature just said, okay, we're not going to deal with this. Privately, I think they hoped that the court would deal with it. This is where it it starts to get particularly interesting and kind of relevant to today because in some cases, legislatures, and I would say Congress sometimes, they they sort of pass on issues in the expectation or hopeful expectation that the courts will deal with this. The, The courts will find a way to deal with this. The courts will determine uh, whether there's a, uh, a right in the Constitution or there isn't And I, I think somewhat um, uh, cynically maybe They may be hoping Well look, if, if it comes out wrong The courts will take the heat <laughs> we, we don't have to here in, in the legislature So, uh, Abigail Roberts went into court The New York State Supreme Court uh, Which is the court of first resort In Rochester sustained her The company's appeal the appellate division of the state Supreme Court, the, the second level in New York's court system then, as now, sustained her. And so she went to the Court of Appeals. Then, as now the state's highest court, 1902. By then, the case had taken on uh, national visibility and significance because uh, people thought, well, let's see how New York handles this. That's the first reason. But the second reason was that the Court of Appeals was headed by Alton B. Parker, who by 1902 was the frontrunner or one of the very few frontrunners for the Democratic nomination for presidency. Uh, probably the foremost, one of the foremost judicial statesmen in the country. So <laughs> there was a lot of interest in how was New York was uh, going to, to handle this. Now, uh, Parker uh, could have uh, kind of farmed it out to someone else. I uh, could. Have said, I don't have any opinion on this, but he wrote the majority opinion himself. Now this was a there were seven judges on the court. This was a four to three vote. Like so many decisions in this era, both here in New York and some of the federal, they're close, four to three. A uh, switching votes would have made it go the other way. So the majority vote. Barker had said, no, you do not have a right to privacy. No, the lower courts were wrong. Yes, you companies may do whatever you want. You do not have a right to privacy. And I, I urge anyone who's interested in privacy at all, and a lot of people are these days for, for good reason, read this for yourself. Uh, re- read um, uh, uh, Roberson versus Rochester Folding Box. It's not that long. It's not that hard to understand. So Parker said, look, uh, there there have been previous decisions about photos, but they've turned on right of possession and theft of the photo. Not not, can I reuse your your image? Uh, He cited this article, which I referenced briefly a few minutes ago by Louis Brandeis and his uh, colleague, and said, look, Brandeis, good guy that he is, very smart guy, they invented this notion (laughs) of right to privacy. There's no precedent in law or court decisions. Uh, yes, this was uh, uh, impolite, rude, and it hurt her feelings, but that's not enough. And if we support this claim, uh, this court will be flooded with claims from litigants about emissions, um, photos, and right, right privacy. So he wrote that four or three decision, three very strong dissents, which said no, Chief Judge, with due respect, you're wrong. Uh, the court ought to protect right to privacy. That's what we ought to do, even though it doesn't say so specifically in the Constitution. Granted, there is no law. That's our that's our business. We should do it. This is one of the first decisions that caused a storm of public controversy. Parker, uh, surprised to himself, was roundly criticized. For this, particularly given his uh, his national prominence, uh, one one editorialist wrote that, "Well, gee, Judge Parker, if this had been your daughter in the photo. He didn't have, have a daughter; he had a son. Been your daughter in the photo? You probably would have you probably would have done differently." And in those days, the courts never responded to critics directly. So Parker didn't hold a news conference and say, "Look, you know, i want to explain this," or uh, I want to I want to respond to my critics, but in this case, uh, the court did respond, but not through Parker, through one of his uh, uh, one of his colleagues, uh, Following Dennis O'Brien, Judge Dennis O'Brien, who wrote an article for the Columbia Law Review, really intended for a popular audience, and it got lots of attention, lots of citations, lots of quotations, where he said, "Look, Parker was right; the dissenters were wrong." Uh, the right to privacy is just fanciful—that's the term you use—and so we don't deserve that. We the court does not deserve the decision. The, um, the criticism we're getting. So anyway, uh, then the attention shifted back to the legislature, and so people were saying, "Okay, look, you ducked this a decade ago, or five, ten, five or six years ago. Now you got to you've got to deal with it." And if you follow legislative debates. 1903, <clears throat> the next year, uh, they had some of the same problems they had in the 1890s and some of the same problems the court did. Uh, they, they could not define privacy. Uh, they couldn't really decide how narrow to make things. And so they settled on a compromise. And it says that uh, – I don't want to read through all of this, so it's not, it's not very long – but anyone uh, who corporation uses for advertising purposes or for trade, the name ports or a picture of any living person without not only first obtained their permission is guilty of a misdemeanor, and that person uh, can uh, sue for for uh, restraint and and damages. And so some people hearing this or reading what I've written said, oh, that's that's what they came up with.' It's like the, the you know the mountain. Uh, came forth with, with something uh, uh, pr- pretty pretty small. <laughs> it's more like a personal image protection law, but for 1903, that was a breakthrough. And so what you find happening is other states begin to copy New York's law. You know, it's a very small step forward. That law in turn is challenged in court, uh, by then, excuse me, uh, Parker's gone. He ran for president, got off the court, and that law was challenged to court, and the court, the court approved it. They said that's fine. Uh, it's in law. Uh, we approve it. It's no no problem. Just one more quick footnote. Uh, Parker ran for president in 1904, and he had a you um, uh, a so-called front porch campaign uh, near office, the front porch of his estate. And he soap was just down the river here near Kingston. And he used to go in, in the summer in hot times in, into the Hudson for a swim. And one day he's coming out and there's a news photographer there who takes his picture. Now, I mean, he's got you know bathing suit on and all that, but and they didn't use the picture. But he complained to the press, look, I have a right to walk around, do what I want without some, some guy coming along and photographing me. And Abigail Robertson wrote a letter to the New York Times, which they made front page news, where she said, in effect, uh, dear candidate Parker, I have it on high authority, namely you, two years ago, that you don't have such. That was very interesting. But anyway, just to bring this to a, a conclusion. There were are, there were other privacy laws certainly, but the the law I just paraphrased for you, is still on the books in New York State with slightly different wording. In addition to other uh, privacy laws, but this is still debated. It's still often kind of pitched into the arenas of the courts to decide. <laughs> how much privacy have you gotten and how much don't you have and of course it's now in this era of electronic surveillance social media and so on the the issues have uh, expanded more became uh, became much more uh, complex and are still uh, still debated today but again just to conclude on this I, I think it sort of bears out one of my contentions that in this progressive era, more just a little over hundred years, ago, in this particularly uh, vibrant state of New York, a lot of these issues came up for the first time and were dealt with well or not well, but sorted of in a precedent setting way. And that's the way this that's the way this was.
0: Well, that is just a fascinating rendition on so many levels. And one of the th- threads that interests me and that you weave throughout your book, is this idea of the court uh, saying that's that's not our prerogative. And then it gets lobbed to the legislature, who actually then act. And one of the things that concerns me about our current era is the Congress seems so deeply divided um that they're almost unable to act. So when there's a decision, like you just mentioned, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, um, there's not any sense that I have, or I think the general public has, that the legislative branch will then respond to this um I mean, is that a, that's a thread that you have in several of your cases, where a, a court decision ends up provoking or causing a legis- the New York State legislature to act?
1: Yeah, that's that's, that's very well put, and it, it's a danger to generalize too much from from my book or from New York State. Wonderful though it was because the issues, some of the issues these days do seem more complicated, uh, more, more likely to attract, they're almost like lightning rods, that these issues attract uh, people and they become almost stand-ins, I think, for uh, larger issues, larger problems, larger concerns that people have, or sometimes they're just convenient A hobby horse, I think, for people with uh, with political agendas, and certainly I don't, I don't, I don't have a solution. I I have a sense, as you do, that some of these issues, which I, I guess I think Congress should have dealt with, either through legislation or should have been dealt with by constitutional amendment, uh, we haven't, we haven't done it because, well, maybe they're too difficult. We couldn't get a consensus. Uh, Congress isn't as responsive as it ought to be. We don't have good leadership. We're politically divided. Uh, there's a whole litany of possible uh, explanations. Uh, but one of the things I think I developed through my research is more empathy for the courts than I had than I had going in. Uh, understanding what they. What they were up against Or the issues they faced And how they dealt with them And one other thing I should add Parenthetically Which I should have before uh, One of the things that you'll see in this book Is I used The Court of Appeals' own archival records which in, Most of which never been used before Though they're, they're in the state archives Now there's nothing internal Very little about the court's deliberations uh, But there is a lot in there Uh, but what the courts had had in front of them when they made their decisions because what you find there are the briefs submitted by public authorities on the one hand defending laws (coughs) or defending the absence of laws or trying to explain why the legislator had dealt with things on the one hand and then on the other hand uh, the attorneys for the complainants or the challenges of the law so you get a better sense than than is than I, I ever had Or would have otherwise. Of what the courts uh, were were looking at. I, I don't know what this tells you. There, there's there are a number of ways that the courts proceed. One is um, uh, what they call uh, to, I think it's stereo, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Which is, look, we made a decision on this. Let it stand. That's that's what it means and sometimes that means not just searching back to the most recent Supreme Court decision but back of that to earlier decisions and in my period at least, much less so now, back into English precedents, English law and reaching uh, the conclusion that we've reached and, and defending it in, in our cases uh, the, the court's said, look, uh, we made a decision, and here's what we said. But times have changed. Evidence has changed. Needs have changed. And some of these uh, decisions, some of these opinions, were changed the second time they went around in the, in the, in the Court of Appeals because uh, the, the, the people who wanted them changed presented a lot more uh, compelling evidence. So, there was a uh, there was a case that, that came up uh, uh, twice actually. Uh, the uh, the first time, in 1907, and then in a different version, 1915, uh, about and, and two separate laws. But about whether the state could forbid women from working at factories at night. The, the state uh, did that starting in 1903 on the assumption that women needed protection, they shouldn't be working at night, uh, wasn't safe for them, wasn't healthy for them, shouldn't be home with their families, it wasn't safe uh, walking home at night, uh, they shouldn't be working with men at night, uh, and, and so on. No, nobody asked women what they thought about this, not, not the working women, but the, this law was pushed mostly by women reformers, Re- really sincere, well-educated, well-meaning reformers. And the court in 1907, a case called uh, People versus Williams threw it out, said, no, this is unconstitutional. And the court said, look, women are not wards of the state. This isn't fair to women. And so, if you look back, you can say, yeah, that that makes sense, too. So women continued to work, and the reformers, though, passed a new law in 1913, essentially the same. But they said, uh, they added, uh, this is to protect the women's health and morals. Uh, And that also went to court. But this time, the advocates came in with a huge amount of evidence. So the state had a factory investigating commission. Sort of after the tragic, uh, tragic uh, fire in, in 1911 in uh, a factory in New York City, which killed a, a lot a lot of people, and resulted in enactment of a lot of uh, safety laws. Uh, this uh, this commission submitted a brief about working conditions of women uh, in factories at night. And uh, Louis Brandeis, who I mentioned uh, a couple of times, uh, working with his sister-in-law uh, here in New York and the smaller states, submitted a big brief about working conditions and why this was bad uh, for, for women. So if you look at the second case, uh, the, both the Materials Court of Appeals and the way the case is cited, so it's got a lot on law and precedent, but it's got a lot more on evidence, evidence, evidence. There's even a book on uh, just on women working in uh, in, in uh, the publishing industry. Both of these cases were involved with uh, print, printing a uh, plan, uh, printing uh, companies, printing plans. But the attorney for the in the second case for the the uh, company, which was the Charles Schwindler Press, said, look, uh, this, isn't, this isn't right because women ought to be able to work at night. And he, he produced, as a witness, a, a woman who had been working at night in a factory when a state investigator came by, and the law was such that they charged the factories, not the, not the workers. But anyway, they, they charged him for, specifically for employing this one uh, one woman. And she came in and testified. And <laughs> she said, look, uh, I need this job. We need the money. Uh, my husband takes care of the kids when I'm not here. Uh, one goes to school, and I'm able to take care of the other one when, when I'm home. And she said to the court, this is very unusual for uh, to be presented this way. Look, you can see by looking at me, uh, I'm, I'm healthy and happy, and I want to keep I want to keep working. And these folks that have pushed this law, well, meaning though they are, uh, they're not doing us any favor. Uh, But the court said this time, well, okay, New York State, you can prevail. This law is constitutional. We're convinced by the evidence you presented uh, this law can stand. So uh, the law stood for for a while. But... (laughs) Pretty soon came the 1920s. Women had the right to vote, and the emphasis quickly shifted to equality. Uh, you know, w- women shouldn't be restricted in ways that men were not. Women, if men could work at a factory at night, women should be able to, uh, too. So, the uh, views of this changed. And I'll just say one more thing before I close off on this: If you look at the writings of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, well known. Uh, recently deceased or not too long ago deceased a uh, member of the U.S. Supreme Court she has written that when she was in law school uh, the, the the Brandeis brief and that whole line of reasoning about bringing in evidence and, and uh, showing how bad things were for workers and women women in particular this is something they studied and endorsed but later she came to believe <laughs> That in retrospect, this was not a good thing. It was probably a disservice uh, to women. And Brandeis, who was a very liberal, really, really very, very good uh, reformer and Supreme Court judge, he hadn't been right on this. Uh, that the advocates had been on the wrong side of this. Now, this kind of is a good way to conclude because was Brandeis right? Was um, uh, Ginsburg right the first time when she was young a student and kind of espoused this, or was she right toward the toward the end later in her career when she came to when she came to second guess it and and sort of dis, disavow I, I guess all it tells you is probably no surprise views change, fashions change, perspectives change, and, and even even people we might look back in history and, and admire. Uh, they change their views on things. So.
0: Yeah, I love that lesson. That's just. Brilliant, because democracy evolves. I mean, yes, only yes. landed white men could vote when the country was founded. So, I, I, we've gone way over our time. But there was just one more, if you don't mind. You're just such a font of knowledge. Your chapter five, I think it is, on public health and individual rights. It looks at how courts handled compulsory smallpox vaccinations for school students, and I just feel. Like there's such a current parallel now with the coronavirus and the vaccination. If you could just close us out with a little bit no, of I, that I, history, I would love it.
1: Well, so again, it's a complex case, so I try to, I try to be concise. Okay. One well, of my, my problems is I, I, I just enjoy New York history so much <laughs> that, I, that I, love, I love to talk about it. And sometimes I assume people want to hear as much about it as I say about it. And that's not always true. Anyway, uh, New York in the late 19th century had a compulsory school attendance law for kids up to 14. You had to attend public school or alternatively private school. And they had a law that said if you attended a public school, you had to have vaccination for smallpox. Then a very serious communicable disease which <clears throat> maimed <clears throat> thousands of people and killed people. And this was challenged in court in 1894, and the court appeal said, yes, this is a valid exercise of police power. This, this, this arrangement is valid. Challenged again in a major way in the case I cover in the book uh, called... Um, People versus V. Meister, again, you can look this up, uh, V-I-E-M-E-I-S-T-E-R. His uh, his son went to school for a number of years and was not vaccinated. But then one time, one year, the authorities in Queens, New York, excluded him because he was not vaccinated. And V. Meister went to court. Two first-level courts sustained the state. As courts had in the past, and then it went to the court of appeals, became a major case. And uh, B. Meiser contended, "This is the parents' right, not the state's. It's unconstitutional. My right has a my kid has a right to be educated." And there was by then, this surprises people some, but a very strong anti-vaccination movement which had begun in England, but actually in the United States began in New York City. And some of the things, whatever your views are on this issue, that the contentions on both sides sound very uh, familiar and are still being played out in the courts uh, regarding COVID and cold requirements for COVID uh, vaccinations. So... He produced some experts who said, look, the vaccine's not effective. Uh, it can actually hurt you. Uh, the medical community is sort of conspiring to make this out, these uh, these vaccines out better than they are. In any case, it's not the state of New York's business. It's parents' business. Now, the, the Court of Appeal said, 1904, this is not Parker. It's just after he had left because he resigned to run for president. Yes, this law is valid. This is within the state's police power to protect health. It's require, It's a reasonable requirement in, in view of the proximity of, of, of kids in classrooms. doesn't really deprive anyone of the Constitutional right to an education. Uh, not everyone agrees, admittedly, but the, the, the judge said the common belief among the people in New York State is that vaccines are effective. And so the law stood, and it was challenged again in 1914, and it and it stood again. So that's a neat story. It'd be nice to close it off there, but the story, <laughs> the story didn't didn't end there. Uh, the, the next year, 1904, the U.S. Supreme Court issued an even broader uh, statement and a broader opinion in, in Jacobson versus Massachusetts which is cited over and over again because it's still a binding decision, uh, validating a Massachusetts law uh, which uh, said public authorities could require anyone, everyone, to get a smallpox vaccination. So after that, and, and that decision, by the way, cited the V-Meister decision as one of the buttressing cases coming up out of New York. But after that, it's been very hard. Since then, it's been very hard to challenge uh, vaccine and public health regulations generally. You, you won't see V. Meister cited. We will once in a while. You'll see Jacobson versus Massachusetts cited over and over and over again. But here in New York, <laughs> there was some resistance and some schools didn't enforce it and some parents still uh, dug in, dragged their heels. And so in 1915, the legislature passed a law to give uh, school boards in schools outside of the big cities more leeway uh, more flexibility in deciding when uh, vaccine uh, shots would be required and when they they wouldn't the long and the short of this is that uh, the opposition dropped supporting compliance group not just because the law required it, though that's always a strong incentive, but because the vaccine got better, more effective, uh, people could see that it worked. It saved kids' lives. And because there was a growing uh, confidence in public health officials, the public health establishment, that's a whole separate story, but a lot of it has to do with the coming uh, to prominence of the New York State uh, Department of Health and some very statesman-like uh, commissioners. So, anyway, eventually it just became routine. the The last outbreak of smallpox in New York State, anywhere in New York State, was 1947 in New York City, uh, quickly suppressed by mass involuntary vaccinations, and smallpox was effectively. Eradicated by 1978, so theoretically it doesn't exist anymore, any anywhere. Uh, and yet the the issues kind of continue, the contentions kind of continue. Do I have a right to not to get a colon shot, or does the state have a right, on behalf of the of the of the, the common good, that people in the people of safe to require me to give <laughs> hey hey Covid, shot. And I, and I say that without without trying to, uh, to to judge it, because one of the things I try to do, I hope I've done this, is to be objective. I try not to reach my own judgments, but rather uh, to present the evidence and say to people, as I've said several times during this broadcast, read the decisions for yourself, read the commentary for yourself, lots of stuff in the literature. Reach your own reach your own conclusions. Uh, people have a right to do that. And I would say they have a something of an obligation to do it. Too, too much what we get these days, or a lot of it is, kind of filtered through what other people think and say, which is which is valuable. But it's also valuable when we can, and often we can. Now, go back to the source, read it for yourself.
0: I love anyway. that, and that's great closing advice. The thing that you offer, though, not just in this uh, podcast, but in your writing, is. Any of us, I can go online and read a case, but you have this vast uh, perspective where you pull together the different threads of a society and how how they interact. You know, the economy, the legislature, the social movements that are going on, and they're all part of how the court functions and reaches a decision, which. As good as I think your advice is on reading the original sources, and I'd love to do that myself. The context is invaluable.
1: Sure, absolutely, sure. Oh no, no, I didn't. I didn't mean to apply It was it? that's 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 essential. Of course, it's not operating right in the vacuum. I mean, none, none of us, none of us does. Yeah. No, no, no institution does. And and courts are, you know, the, the courts read the newspapers. The courts the courts know what's going on. The courts understand what people are saying. Fair to say. But they have if they're doing their jobs, they have kind of a separate obligation. Take all that into account, but look at the law look at the Constitution. And and by the way, you know, somebody could have added in many of these issues, look at the state constitution too, because you know we have one. Every every state does. Uh, look at precedent. Look at kind of trends in public policy, and then reach a then reach a decision. And and I think maybe the the more uh, that's at stake with an issue, uh, the less likely the courts are to satisfy everybody. Because if they were easy issues, somebody else would have. Somebody else would have settled them, or they would have have gone away.
0: Well, and I I love this idea that they keep washing up again and again and again. And your Ruth Bader Ginsburg anecdote was perfect, because even in a single lifetime, someone can have an opinion and then evolve and have a new opinion. So, sure. do you have any concluding thoughts to leave our listeners with as we close out?
1: Well, no. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> what, I, what I just said. Uh, his history, which some people think, oh, that's not very exciting, or I maybe mean, they had a course someplace along the way, read a read book, was all exciting. History really is exciting. It's about people. It's about cause and effect relationships. It's about things that really count. And what it's so hard for us to realize because we are, I think we're kind of programmed these days to have a short historical memory, is that we didn't get to any of these things that we're at now, good or bad, by what happened day before yesterday. It it, it all goes back uh, along a long ways. And so many of these issues go back to the U.S. Constitution, uh, 1787, in fact, 1789, and the New York State Constitution, uh, 1777. And we talk about them as foundation documents, which, of course, they are. They're the kind of binding documents. We also like to bring in orders such as Declaration of Independence, which are more declarations of principle than, than, than binding documents. But uh, as a nation and as a state, I think we are committed to a consensus. I hope we are. We're going to go by the Constitution. <laughs> in New York State, we're going to go by the New York State Constitution. And so we, sh- we shall uh, discuss what certain things mean and meant, what are the original meanings? What we should go after, or some some newer meaning? But we we will go back, particularly the U.S. Constitution. Any any decision the Supreme Court makes, theoretically at least, will be grounded in the U.S. Constitution, and we'll, you'll see citations to it. So, in a sense, that gives us a starting point, if you will. Uh, people, uh, people. Um, Seldom sit down and read the uh, United States Constitution. I mean, it's it's true. It isn't real exciting reading, but it's not that long either. And you can, you can make sense out of it, even though it's an 18th century document. If you try to read the New York State Constitution in, from 1777, and I've written about that in my other book, you can read it. You can understand it. it's about 5,000 words. And it starts out by quoting the Declaration of Independence. But if you read the New York State Constitution today, which you can do, it's online, Secretary of State has it. The New York State Secretary of State has it online in the Senate. I think it's about 60,000 words. <laughs> and a lot of it is, well, not all that easy to understand. But there is a Bill of Rights there, just like there is in the U.S. Constitution. And it goes back, uh, not to the original New York State Constitution, but shortly thereafter, added by the legislature, ratified by the people. So, when we talk about constitutional rights, I don't want to carry this too far because I'm not—I'm not an attorney. I'm not totally sure all this works. In New York State, we got a couple of things to look at: federal Constitution was kind of preempts everything. U.S. Supreme Court. But we also have our our own constitution. Now, no surprise, probably, you'll see parallel wording in those documents. And that's in part because some of the people, men, as they all were in those days, and by the way, all the judges I've talked about, legislators in the period in my new book, all men, some of the men who were so influential and wrote some of the documents in New York, they went on and wrote part of the documents. <laughs> so no surprise if you see the same concept uh, popping up. And that's also not a surprise because they're trying to reflect some eternal principles and trying to build in some, some safeguards uh, against tyranny. Uh, but also to, to say to individuals, uh, he, here's, here's how we're going to live together. <laughs> here's the, here are the rules of the road. Here are the guardrails. You kind of have to stay in these. Uh, if you get outside of them, you're going to have trouble, or violence or something, or the court's going to tell you to head back in. That's what That's what courts do.